0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is coming in from New York. Would you like to introduce yourself, John?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm John Gluckow. I've been a vintage clothing dealer for about 25 years now. Um, I studied menswear design at FIT before becoming a vintage dealer um, and have worked in and out of the menswear business uh, during the course of the last 25 years. Um, that's about That's about
0: it. That's pretty much the short version though, isn't it? Because I guess you, so. You sort of got into the making of clothes at quite a young age, I think.
1: I did. Um, when I was about 10 or 11, maybe, um, I was on a trip with my family for a soccer tournament. And I saw a pair of swimming trunks that I wanted, but they were, they were, they were a lot more than my mom and dad wanted to pay for them. And my mom, my mom was a sewer and she said, we can make those in 10 minutes at home. So when we got home, um, I, uh, I said, uh, how about those shorts now? Let's, let's make those. And and she took me to the, she took me to the local, um, five and 10 and we bought some fabric and we went home and made a pattern on a brown paper bag. And, uh, and then she taught me how to sew, so I've been been doing that pretty much ever since. On some on some level, whether it's repairing things or making things for myself or uh, trying to come up with samples now for my brand. So yeah,
0: there's, there's kind of two ways an experience like that could go. Either you're thinking, "Wow, the possibilities are endless." Or you might have been. Wow, my mum's so cheap. Why didn't she buy the others? <laughs> but you, you clearly went for the first one.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were uh, we weren't wealthy. We weren't we weren't poor by any means. We were you know decidedly middle class, I guess. And um, but I, you know, I knew I knew that that my parents valued their money and uh, and and you know. I had the experience of clothes shopping with them for school every year and so on and so forth. And I, I mean I knew I knew when I saw them and I saw the price tag that there was a it was a long shot that I was gonna get her to buy me those shorts. And the fact that she gave me another option, which ended up producing maybe ten pair of shorts for me and in the end, maybe three or four for my friends. Um, it was, you know, it was great that that there was an option there. So yeah.
0: It is a, an interesting lesson to learn early on, though, that um, you can actually make stuff yourself.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I had seen her make. So, my father was a minister, um, and she was often making crafts to be sold at the church on, you know, for various events that they had where they were doing fundraising. And um, so, I, I had seen her many times pull her machine out and make fabric Christmas trees or witches to sell at Halloween or, you know, all kinds of things that she would make and sell, you know, sort of, you know, just mostly decorative stuff that people would put in their houses. Um, she, I don't remember her making clothes, um, but uh, like I said, mostly crafts, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a very quick transition from one to the other.
0: Did this in some way, awaken an interest in clothing and lead you down the menswear path?
1: Well, I, I definitely already had a, an interest just in general. Like I I cared about what I was wearing apparently at that. I don't remember at that age, it being constantly on my mind, but the fact that I went out of my way to say, Hey, Hey, I want these shorts. Let's, you know, and and then take the next step to make, to make a bunch of pairs at home. I I must've, I must have really, you know, had an idea about what I wanted to wear, uh, but it was it was a while before I really, you know, recognized it as an interest that might be something I did for the rest of my life. Um, I didn't really start buying secondhand clothes for another seven or eight years, maybe six or six or seven years, um, and I didn't think about working in the clothing industry until. My last year of college, I think.
0: So, so, so this fermented in- for a while. So this interest in vintage clothes, where did, how did that come about?
1: Um, the f- so so again back to the church. Uh, the church had a sale twice a year uh, called the rummage sale, where all year long people would donate things, and they they had two two rooms in the in the basement of the church where they just they just packed everything in there that was donated. They stored it. And then twice a year they'd pull it all out and have a big sale to raise money for for the church. And, that, and I remember in high school having seen the movie The Breakfast Club, and one of the characters was wearing this great tweed overcoat. And and I was at the church helping helping my, my mom pull out all the stuff and put it on the right table. You know, they had they had all these um, folding tables that they would set up in in the meeting room and the tables would be piled up with what one would have men's coats, one would have ladies coats, one would have dresses, one would have shirts. So I was out there separating the things and, and I came across a tweed coat that was similar, at least in my mind to the one in the movie. And I, and I, I grabbed that and then ended up up buying that. Um, And that's probably the first piece of used clothing that I ever bought for myself. Um, And then in college, I can remember um, a company, a surplus company coming to campus and setting up for a week on, on uh, uh, setting up tents, outdoor tents on a big lawn and just selling uh, su- surplus military clothing. And I remember buying, you know, s- five or ten things at that, just being really amazed at, you know, how inexpensive the things were and how well-made they were and and how old they were. Um, it just really caught my eye and and, uh, and triggered something in my brain, I think.
0: So was it the the cheap quality or was it the history in it or what do you think really sort of caught your eye there? Uh,
1: I was working at the time at Banana Republic um, in in my my college town had a Banana Republic and this was when they were sort of transitioning from this they, st- they still had a lot of the dec- decor in the store of, of the old Banana Republic but the clothes were definitely shifting toward the the newer Banana Republic. Um, And actually on several occasions, my manager, I was the only, the only man in the store. My manager would ask me at the end of the day, Hey John, could you take that big trunk and put it out at the curb? We're getting rid of that. And they were throwing away all these, all these antiques that they had decorated the store with over the years. And I would put them out at the curb and then we'd close the shop up and I'd go around the block and I'd come back and and grab it and take it back to my, my, (laughs) my little dorm room. And the next time my parents would come, I would stick it in their car and say, "You know, put this in the basement at home." Um, so I, I, I think I was, at one time seeing that kind of thing and uh, watching old movies. It was it was you know, the early days of like AMC American Movie Classics, where you know you could twenty four hours a day on cable you could see old movies. So I was I was getting these kind of influences, I think, um, and uh, starting to see. Older clothes and the style of older clothes as something that interested me.
0: Was it a good time for vintage then? Because these things seem to sort of go in waves.
1: Well, I I mean, it it was probably it was a good time to be buying vintage if you were if you were you could still find a lot of things easily. Like you could find things from the. 60s, 50s, 40s, even 30s, 20s and teens if you wanted to. I think at that time I wasn't actively in college I wasn't really thrifting that that much. I I might wander into a thrift store or an, or an antique mall um but I wasn't actively like every every day or even every week going out and hitting the thrift store. Um but I but only a few years later I started doing that and for sure that like the 90s there was so much more every day just ending up on the racks in thrift stores, you know, that, that, that today you, you know, it's, it's a, it's a rarity to see those things popping up now in a thrift, at least, especially in and around New York, New York city.
0: Do you think that's because they've actually disappeared or because they're not popular and hence not being sort of tried to sell?
1: They're disappearing for sure. And there's a much more developed market and a, a much more developed, like buyers have become much more aggressive. And so, um any any thr- any big thrift company probably has, you know, a, a number of vintage buyers who are trying to get in their back door and and you know, talking to managers and and oh, can you hold this for me? Can you hold that for me? Anything old, you know, put it aside. And somebody goes in the back room once a week or once a month and goes through all the old stuff before it ever goes to the floor. And a lot of those companies then and now won't put things out for sale that have damage. So uh, if something comes in, some of the thrift companies have people working there who know about vintage and will recognize it. And, and, but even then it doesn't necessarily go on the floor. It might go on eBay or it might go on their company's auction site. Um, So it's, it's definitely become a lot more competitive and absolutely the, the, the quantity of things from, especially like from say World War II and before, those things are, are disappearing. You know, if you just think about the timeline, the people of that era, what percentage of them are, are still alive? And it's only a matter of time before their estates are processed one way or another, whether things are thrown away or donated or or sold off uh, or handed down to family members or um, you know, house gets sold, gets renovated. A lot of things go in the trash, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, th- th- those things have a lot of them have, have already been sort of processed one way or another. Uh, so the the number of estates with hordes of clothing from pre World War II is just is just far far less now than it was, say, in the '90s when I got started, really.
0: I'm also thinking that someone who was buying clothes in the thirties didn't buy as many clothes as some people buy today, so
1: <laughs> Definitely not.
0: That one suit might have been pretty worn out by the time. Absolutely. He
1: died. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean a lot of what you find is either never worn or worn to death. You you find in between, of course, but but the two extremes happen more than the in between, I think. So,
0: mm. so the vintage bug caught you. Where did that lead you?
1: Um, I think the the, the the clothing design bug actually caught me first. And at the end of my um, at the end of my time in college, I decided I wanted to work in in the clothing industry and particularly in design. and um, I went and uh, I, I interviewed with someone at Ralph Lauren, and uh, through a connection, of mine. And, and they said, you know what you should do? You should go and work in the store. Um, they had this, this amazing flagship store on 72nd street in Manhattan in an old mansion. Um, it was, it was really unique at that time as a, as a flagship store. Like, like it really, it really spelled out for anybody who visited there, what the brand was all about. And, um, they said, you should go and work there in the store as a, as a retail clerk. And, Get, if you really want to work here, go work there first and get a really solid background in what the company is about and then see where that takes you. So um, I did that. I worked in the menswear uh, department at at the at the mansion for a year. And while that was happening, uh, while I was there, they were opening the sto- a new store across the street called Polo Sport, which was, again, a brand new thing at the time. Um, a new flagship where they were focusing and and showing their their more like modern and tech kind of clothes, um, and then they also had in that store the f- very first Double RL store, um, and so so I mean most of your listeners I'm sure are familiar with Double RL, but f- for anybody who's not, it was basically um, a line of clothes made based based. Uh, strictly on vintage clothes, and probably the very f- one of the first uh, lines of clothing that was aged to look like it had been worn, um, as the original samples were. So they were taking they were taking flannel work shirts and stone washing them, sometimes to the point where they would end up in the store with holes in them, which was unintended. <laughs> but that's you know, and um, I mean it, w- it was a really interesting time to be there. So I, I, when they were opening that store, they they came around and said, Hey, anybody, they announced at one of our meetings, anybody who is interested in working across the street at Polo Sport, um, come and talk to us after. And, and I did, and I ended up working at the sports store in creative services, which is, you know, display store display. So doing the windows and doing the mannequins. And it was such a new and important, um, shop for the company that, they didn't give us a lot of freedom. Uh, literally, literally, if if someone had to sell a piece of clothing off of off of a mannequin, and if I couldn't replace it with exactly the same piece of clothing from the racks if they were sold out, um, I would have to wait until my boss told me what piece of clothing to put on it. It was they were they were so hyper focused on how this store looked, um, which was kind of frustrating, um, and eventually pushed me to to, to, to to look for something else um, but it, I mean it was, it was still a, a great a really great experience and especially being there with the RRL store because they were they were also selling vintage clothing in the RRL store mixed in with the RRL clothing and so I got to meet the buyer for the vintage clothing and just learned an, an incredible amount about vintage from him from being in the store from being able to stand there might essentially if I wasn't changing a mannequin I was standing around waiting to change a mannequin so I would stand around in DLL and and look at the clothes and look at whether it was a RL clothes or the vintage clothes I would just you know study them and look at you know the, the vintage clothes all had a tag which de- detailed what it was so I would you know I was basically in in class stu- studying what these things were and learning about them and then I noticed that a lot of the people who came in and bought the vintage clothing were Japanese and that was very interesting because I didn't know anything about the market in Japan for vintage clothes I had no idea that such a thing existed and and it was a huge thing um uh and and so that was also that was another eye-opening experience about working there
0: that must have been around the time that this really picked up the the Japanese exporting American vintage
1: it would have been nineteen ninety three ninety four uh, I think things had been really percolating there since the early eighties but it I think it really yeah it really was it really was ramping up around that time
0: so you made contact with some Japanese buyers
1: no not there um, no I, I worked there I worked in the sports store for one year, and then I, I decided that um, I wanted that I wanted to go to the uh, to FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City, um, and, and study the men in the menswear program. So I needed to prepare a portfolio for that, and um, I so I left I left Ralph Lauren, moved back home to New Jersey, worked on my portfolio for a while. Um, which included making a few, a few garments for my, for my interview. Um, and when I left, the buyer for the vintage clothing uh, asked me, he, kn- he knew I was going to the flea market every weekend because w- when I worked there, I could wear either Ralph Lauren clothes or vintage. Um, and I, I could, so I could mix in vintage. I couldn't mix in anything else. Uh, so I was going to the flea market every weekend and buying things for myself to wear uh, to work. Uh, and then, so so when I left, he said, "You know what? You, you know you're going to the market every weekend. I need more people to buy from. Why don't you you, you have a good understanding of what we're looking for? Why don't you start buying things for me?" So I did that. That that year, that I was preparing for FIT, um, I started I started shopping for him, and I would go in I would go into the city every maybe three or four months and bring him a bring him a bag or two of of. Finished clothes and he would buy most of it. Um, but he would always leave me with a few things that he didn't want. And when I, when I moved, when I did, um, eventually get into FIT and move back to the city for school, I, I brought like a bag or two of the things he had rejected over the, over that year to a dealer from the flea market that I was friendly with and said, Hey, do you want to buy any of this stuff? And he bought some of it. And, um, And he said, You know what? Like this other stuff, I can't really use it, but if you want to come and set up with me, you can sell it here. You know, you don't have to get your own booth. Just come and take like a half a rack and you'll probably sell most of it in one weekend. So I I did that. I I was hoping when I moved back to the city to get a, a, a bartending job, but I was having a hard time finding one. So I went on a Saturday to the market and I would usually go to the flea market at nine or 10 in the morning. I asked him what time should I be there. He said, be here by 5 a.m. Wow. So I headed, over, I headed over to the flea market at 5 a.m. With my, with my two duffel bags of, of stuff to sell, and I couldn't believe the amount of activity happening at that hour and all the things I could find to buy at that hour that were gone by 9 or 10 when I would get there uh, in the past. Um, so that weekend, I sold most of what I had brought and bought a bunch of other stuff some of it for the Ralph Lauren buyer some of it for myself some of it just with the prospect of maybe selling again there and uh, at the end of at the end of the weekend he said do you want to come back next weekend and um, i ended up basically putting myself through fit by selling at the flea market i never got that bartending job uh, after a, after a couple of weeks of selling at the market i gave up looking for one and, um, I realized pretty quickly that I can make decent money just, you know, shopping during the week and, and selling there on the weekend. And there were, there were a couple of Japanese guys who lived in New York City at the time who were buying. And then eventually I met guys who were coming over on trips for buying trips. So yeah, that, that was when I first met Japanese buyers and, and started selling to Japan.
0: What sort of stuff was it they were looking for at the time?
1: Ah. Uh, a lot of the same things they're looking for now. Um, to be honest with you, although although it's it's expanded a lot, but you know the, the basics of now were, were kind of the basics then too, like a military um, workwear, Levi's, which are, was always the basis of the of the market, but which are very hard to find on the East Coast. Um, and uh, they were starting to look for for vintage sweatshirts and things like that um, around Christmas of that year. So two or three months in um, on my, on my break from college, I found uh, what's called a rag house. I'm not sure if you know what rag houses are, but they're basically when a thrift store has more donations than they can handle, or those, those damaged things that they don't want to sell. They sell them for like pennies a pound to, to rag houses and rag houses have existed for I imagine they started around the Industrial Revolution, um, but they're, they process the clothes for different purposes. But one of the original purposes was for liter- literally for rags, for wiping rags for industry. So you know, for wiping down the grease on a, on a machine, for example. Um, so, but but these are just big open factories where thousand pound bales of clothing come in and they crack them open and an employee stands in front of it and has maybe a circle around him or her of, of 15 barrels and they know exactly what's supposed to go in each of those barrels and they stand there and, and pull a piece of clothing off off the off the bale one at a time and throw it into those into those barrels and then somebody else comes along grabs the barrel of t-shirts and takes it to the t-shirt department and they grade it down from there and then somebody grabs the wool coats and they take those over to the wool department and they grade them from there and and over the years, vintage clothing dealers have, you know, found their way into these places and, and start started, you know, picking off what what was useful in our market. So, so that that Christmas, I, I happened to find a rag house where I could pick. And um, before that, these Japanese guys who would come to the flea market, they would they would come to my booth, and they would, you know, I'd say hello, and they 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 say hello back. They'd look through my clothes. Maybe they'd buy something. Maybe they wouldn't, but they really wouldn't talk to me much. And then I went to the rag house and I remember being in the rag house and just, you know, the volume of the things I was looking for was incredible. And um, and there were things there that I hadn't really thought to buy before because I really wasn't seeing them in the thrift stores. But um, so So that first week back to the flea market after picking in the rag house I imagine the look the look of my booth really changed and the 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 grade of what I was picking changed and suddenly these these two Japanese guys in particular took a much more keen interest in my booth and in talking to me so now they were now they were much friendlier and much more outgoing and oh you know where did you get this stuff and and you know can you get more of it will you have more next week you know and um And so one of them, one of them in particular, um, I became very friendly with, and he would bring me, he would bring me photocopies of Japanese magazines and he would show me like, you know, I'm looking for this and I'm looking for this. And he would, he would bring garments in and show me and say, you know, like, this is what I'm looking for. And, and he taught me about, you know, some of the details that could tell me if something was old or not. Um, and so, so what? So one week, so one weekend, one Japanese guy came 10 minutes before the other, and he was in my booth picking through my new, my new stuff. And the other guy walked up and looked, I I saw him standing 15 feet away and just looking at this guy, watching him pick (laughs) through the bag. And, um, so the the next week that guy came half an hour earlier (laughs) and he got first pick and the other guy, the similar thing happened. The other guy showed up and saw him already going through it, and he walked away. And the next week, he came thirty minutes earlier than that. <laughs>
0: it's a slippery so slope. It,
1: it was, yeah. It was, it was. You know, before long, I got to the flea market, and these two guys were standing in my space waiting for me. Um. So uh, the the one the one guy actually was was sort of temporarily in New York. He was there for a few months, and he left. And 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 the other guy was permanently in New York, and 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 he and I. Uh, built a pretty strong relationship and I was selling to him for quite a while um, and uh, and he actually he eventually said like look why don't I because I didn't have a car i was I was uh taking a taxi every weekend from uh well actually at first I was taking a taxi from the apartment I was subletting over to the flea market uh, the next semester I lived in the YMCA and I found on the street the one of the US Post Office had these very big uh, carts on wheels and they, w- they would abandon them on the street sometimes. I don't know why, but I found one of them just sitting on the street and I took it, I took it to my room at the YMCA and I would fill it with all my stuff for the flea market and I would roll it because the YMCA was only about a block and a half from the flea market. I would roll that down the street at 4 a.m. over to my, to my flea market booth. And th- this 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 Japanese guy said, "You know, look, wh- why don't I pick you up in the morning and drive you over to the market?" Which was very kind of him, but it was also a strategy because he would pick me up and he would go through all all the clothes in his car before I ever got to the flea market. Um, it was a, it was a very it was a very competitive world even back then. Um, so that was that was sort of how I I discovered uh, the Japanese market and. And started working with, with Japanese clients.
0: But at the same time, you were studying menswear during the week. Yep. I've often wondered what sort of stuff does that actually involve? I mean, what were you learning?
1: So the menswear program at FIT is 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 really great. It's a small program. There were only maybe less than twenty kids. Um I had already finished a full four-year college program and worked for a couple of years, so I was I was older than everyone else. Um, uh, my, my, I met my wife there in the program. She was, she was in the same sort of situation. She had, she had come over from Korea after, after finishing four year college and working in the industry for a couple of years. So we were 24, 25, all the other, all the other students were 18 fresh out of high school. Maybe, maybe a couple of them were 19 had worked for a year somewhere. But, um, the men'swear program is unique from the women 'swear program in that the women's the women's side at FIT is broken up into a lot of different disciplines, and men'swear is so small that they basically teach you everything so it focuses on on design and including pattern making uh, drawing um, flat drawing life drawing. Um, but it also teaches uh, a lot. Uh, there's a clothing. There are clothing history classes. There's marketing classes, um, business, business classes. Uh, you know how to how to how you would op, how you would operate your own business. Um, all, all kinds of all kinds of things related to every aspect, basically, of of running a menswear business.
0: So that combined with what you'd learned through the vintage business must have given you a pretty comprehensive understanding.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, what I had learned at Ralph Lauren already, and even just being there, and one of the good things about working for Ralph Lauren in those two uh, Manhattan stores was that their their design offices, their corporate offices were right down the street. And so we would often either get visits from People from corporate in the store who would do—they would do like morning before the store opened. We'd be there, and they'd do morning meetings with us, teaching us about the line that we were receiving, or teaching us about different, just different aspects of the company. And sometimes we'd have like field trips down to the corporate offices to see the next showrooms or to see something that they were working on. And um, so I—I I had a lot of exposure to how, how the design team would present things to to the production team or how they would present things to the marketing team. Um, And so it, it helped me when I was at FIT just in terms of being able to understanding how to, how to do board layouts and how to, and and then also from the vintage side, I was always interested. There were, there weren't really books at that time. Like there are now there weren't so many, at least there weren't so many um, to teach you about, the clothing you were buying or looking for, so I was uh, I, I was always looking for for old catalogs and old you know sales pamphlets and things like that that I could find in the flea market. And actually, at FIT, the library there has a huge collection of them on microfilm. Um, I, I imagine it's all computerized by now, but at that time, you'd go and get the microfilm disc and put it in in the machine and real and wind the wheel and, you know, scroll through, I'd scroll through catalogs from the early 1900s looking for design ideas or layout ideas. Um, so yeah, uh, it definitely brought me a different perspective when I was at school, um, on how to approach the things we, the, you know, the, the the assignments we had and then after school. So when I finished FIT, my last my last semester at FIT, I had a, an internship back at Ralph Lauren. And when I graduated, I, I took a job there for a couple of years. Um, and I, actually, I worked in RRL. So it was very vintage-based, vintage vintage-oriented. And I was still uh, – I continued to be a vintage dealer at the time, and I would bring a lot of things into the office uh, for us to work with. So um, it never really – I never really – Stop doing either one. It's sort of like they, they've they've kind of they've gone together pretty much throughout my career.
0: You mentioned earlier that WRL they would sell both original, authentic vintage in the shop, and their well reproduced vintage. Were they sort of completely reproduced, or was there a quality difference, construction difference?
1: Yeah, there. There's always. There's always or almost always construction differences now um, with with what's made now for a number of reasons. Um, Most often for um, price and uh, and ease of manufacturing. Um, There are machines now that didn't exist then and there there were machines then that don't exist now. So depending on the factory you're working with, you need to solve certain problems of construction. I would say that most of the time, the garment looked very vintage on the outside at least they, they they reproduced the details most of the details very well on the outside. If you looked inside, especially on the early RRL stuff, I think um, th- there were there were a lot of differences. there were a lot of things that that weren 't right if you if you 're looking for something to be made exactly as it was back then, if that matters to you um, but um, and and just the, in terms of in terms of quality of fabrics and um, f- definitely quality of fabrics. I think in the in the in the thirty years, al- almost thirty years since Double was born, um, the the quality of fabrics used for that, not just by Double but the whole market has really in- improved. Um, the ability of, of mills to imitate old fabrics uh, has really improved. Um, and there are so many people now who have found, d- dug up and found the old machines and, um, and fa- factories that have done that. And people who, people who wanted to make something and brought machines to factories and said, here, here's this old machine. I want you to use this. Um, I remember Motion talking about, about that with you on uh, on the podcast um so so there's there's quite a few guys like that who have their own small workshop but also like for example in japan i know there are quite a few factories that have uh, gathered old machines uh, to be able to make things look vintage outside and inside so but, but again you know cost factors there's 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 ways that you can do there's ways you can you can sew a particular seam, for example, in one in one process now, that if you do it exactly as it was done in the old in the old days, it might take three processes. So depending on how much you want to spend, how how expensive you want the garment to be, you might go ahead and and use the more modern machine and save whatever that ends up being um, per garment uh, to lower your costs, um, or you might want to make the garment as expensive, you know, as expensive as it's going to be and have it made exactly as it was 100 years ago. So it just depends on the company.
0: I get the impression that there's a lot of talk about authenticity and a lot of people are very sort of keen on the old machines and making garments precisely as they were, but maybe not keen enough to actually want to pay price.
1: That's the the catch, isn't it? You know, there's definitely a lot of talk about, you know, criticisms of, of companies, you know, the, that, that they're not, it's not, oh, that, that brand, it's not quite, it's not made quite as well as this other brand. They really get things right. But then at the end of the day, I mean, this is the biggest, in my mind, well, there's two, two maybe two big, two very big problems with, with the fashion industry. But one of them is on the retail side, the retail customer has been brainwashed never to pay retail. And, uh, you know, that's, one very good thing about the experience in Japan for me um, of selling my brand in Japan is that they they don't have that cycle that we have in the West of of things constantly going on sale. Um, I mean, I I, I kind of remember this happening in our in our department stores when I when I was growing up. You know, that when I was very young, there'd be a sale once or twice a year at the you know at the end of the season. Uh, but I remember. When I was in high school and when I was in college, it became like a preseason sale. The things would arrive in the store, and immediately they'd be fifteen or twenty percent off. Yeah. But you knew that if you, you know, if you waited another month or two, they'd be 50, they'd be forty or fifty percent off. So, how bad did you want the thing? Were you going to pay? And, but then, by now, it comes in, and there's a preseason sale, and they're telling you this is the lowest price it's going to be. You know, it's, it's 40% off and that's as low as it's going to get, which isn't true, but you know, it might go back up to retail, it will come back down, it'll go back up. But like we've, we've been brainwashed never to pay retail. And, and that has basically killed the industry in a lot of ways. And, And they don't, they don't have that. They don't have that in Japan. I'm not sure about other, other Asian countries, but, but in Japan in particular, they don't have that, that sale mentality. And, um, so, so we would have things in our store from three seasons, three seasons ago, or three years ago, and a customer would come in and be and, and just and be so happy to find it. That oh, I saw this on the website, and I I I figured I missed it. it was, I didn't know that it would be still around, and, and I'm so happy you guys have it still. And they would pay full price for it, and there was no question about you know could I get a discount or or will this ever go on sale? It was just that's the way. At least in that market, in that the small stores that sell a lot of, a lot of the, uh, um, uh, you know, vintage, vintage inspired brands, um, they, they don't expect things to be marked down heavily. So, um, so that's, uh, that's, that's something that I think if we really want to, if we really want to address the issues in the, in the, in the fashion industry, that's one of the big things people people need, need to realize that they can't always get things for less than it costs to make them. But at the same time that the makers have a responsibility to re, to make responsible quantities of things and not to flood the market with things that are going to end up in outlets getting shipped overseas to, 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 you know, like basically, you know, thrown away. And and then, the, you know, I, I've seen a bunch of posts recently, um, on Instagram in particular about thrown away isn't always, doesn't, doesn't ever mean thrown away. Like Mm. it goes somewhere and whether it's in a landfill or whether it's, it's gone, um, you know, to, uh, to somebody's waste bin or or, or wherever it ends up, it's not thrown away. It's, it's, it's still, it's still a weight on the earth and it's, it's still causing problems for us. So I guess I've gone on a tangent,
0: (laughs) That's 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 fine.
1: But, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, that's something that's been on my mind for quite a while.
0: It's an interesting tangent. And I was going to go on a another separate one out from that again, uh, because sure. I often see um, what you say about um, pre-season sale, mid-season sale and all this. I think that has taught us that the actual retail price isn't what a shop is willing to sell something for. Absolutely. That's just That's just the price they discount down from. Uh, and I did hear mention of uh, the way they do it in Japan being the reason why a lot of the stuff we'd like to buy from Japan seems very reasonable there. But by the time it's made it to the West in shops, it's, well, it's at least twice the price. But that's because the Japanese price is the price.
1: Well, it's also, there's a couple of things that factor into that. Um, so typically, in the in the West, I believe the the wholesale price is less than half of the retail price. So stores in the West, it, it used to be about half. Stores would expect to double to double the price they paid for something to sell it at, at retail. But it's it's over the years it's 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 gone down to like maybe f- I, I would say it's like 45% of the retail price. Maybe uh, it depends on the company, of course, but but companies mark up. More than double, and and part of that is so they can discount later. Uh, part of that is because their their overhead and other expenses um, have increased. Um, but in Japan, the the wholesale price, at least the company, the companies that I've heard I've heard um, about this from, um, the wholesale price is sixty percent of the retail price. So if stores want to if stores want to carry your brand they're paying more than half of what their selling price is going to be and the selling price is dictated by the by the maker and it's oh. it's, it's it's i imagine there's there there may or may not be a contract but it's respected if if and it, if i buy if i buy clothes from your brand you set a retail price and i agree to sell it at that retail price and I agreed not to discount it. At least not like I think nowadays they don't want it discounted on the Internet. Uh, if, if you have a small sale in your store, maybe to your retail customers, maybe in, in some instances that's okay, but, but they don't discount it on the internet. Um, they don't try to, to price compete with other stores who are carrying it. Um, you know, you have your store in your area, and you you know, if I'm selling to you. I won't sell to a guy down the street from you in your town. I'll sell to you and we'll have a relationship. And And part of that relationship is that you won't discount, you won't discount the clothes. But part of that relationship is also that I won't sell to your neighbor or your, your main competition. Um, so, so there's a lot of factors that work into how, what, ma- what makes that system work. And I think a lot of those things used to exist in America used to exist probably in Europe. Um, but, over the years, those kinds of relationships have eroded. And like, for example, when I was growing up at, in the, on the Jersey Shore, we would drive, you know, be, at the end of the summer, for example, before school started, we would drive out to Reading, Pennsylvania, which is, from where I grew up, a good three-hour drive, um, two and a half, three hours, um, because Reading was where the outlets were. They were out, there was outlet shopping in Reading. And outlet shops really had things that had not sold in the retail store, and were just they were just cl- clearances, closeouts, things that the company wanted to get rid of, and they were selling at deep discount. But you couldn't have an outlet anywhere near a major retail hub. So this was stuck out in the middle, you know, in a in small in. Well, Reading was a used to be a big manufacturing city, but so they had these big. They had these big factory buildings that were empty, and the uh, outlets occupied these old factory buildings. Um, And we would go out there and and do our shopping before school started. But nowadays, there's an outlet like every 20 miles on the highway. They're everywhere. They're right next to shopping malls. Sometimes they're in full-price malls. How is a company going to be able to sell something at retail when – there's a there's an outlet mall selling the same thing and 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 when i say the same thing that's another problem these companies are overproducing their goods to the point where they can have something in the full price store and still have too much of it and put it in the outlet store at the same time at a discount or they make a whole another line of clothes just for the outlet store that's like similar to what they sell full price but it's more cheaply made the fabrics are cheaper they can offer it at a lower price it all it all erodes erodes the, the the business um i mean and it's you know like a lot of other things in the world these days i'm not sure where the solution starts because it's so the the problems that have caused it are so many and so broad and at this point so deeply ingrained in the business that i don't really know where the way back is um and as I said, that's like one – in my mind, one big problem in the fashion business. The other one, of course, is sustainability in production and and, and how we make things and the, and the quantities, especially, of things that we make. But, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I notice that there's a big shift there where it's the consumers that are the problem. So, we have to become much better. But there's really very little talk of the brands and the makers – being a part of the problem which is kind of sneaky
1: <laughs> well yeah i mean I uh, I'm, a lot of a lot of the makers are at least saying that they're addressing the problem you know that they're making they're using more sustainable fabrics that they're they're looking at cotton where the cotton comes from i remember a few years ago um there was a big a big thing about down, where the down is coming from and how the how the geese are treated and now like so there's talk about it, and there's a handful of companies who are really you know who really care about it and really address it but um at the end of the day, a lot of companies just are you know doing lip service to that small segment of the population that is kind of raising cane about it
0: so oh. so speaking of uh, disgusting large brands. How did it come about that you sort of started your own smaller brand?
1: So um, I, was, I was doing a vintage clothing show in California uh, once a year called Inspiration. And one of my Japanese customers was bringing with him um, the owner of a small brand called Gelato. And uh, he was coming to the show to buy samples for his brand. And um, I had actually met him in Japan a few years before that at a selling event I did there. And so I was, I was seeing him once a year in in Los Angeles and we'd, you know, we'd, we'd all go out to dinner. um, We'd all hang out at the show. um, And and he would buy, he was buying vintage from me. And um, after three or four years of, of this uh, through my customer who was bringing him there, he, he asked me if I would be interested in making a clothing brand with him in my name. And that's how, that's how we started. He's, he's had, uh, at that time, I think he had had gelato for maybe seven or eight years and, uh, had, had, had really made, uh, a really nice small, small, small business of it. Uh, there's a lot of small brands in Japan, um, but he had been pretty successful at, at, at developing a market and getting a, getting his business really off the ground.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. I do often wonder what with all the clothes being exported to Japan and all the clothes they're making themselves there, I mean, is there an infinite demand in Japan for this type of stuff?
1: It it sure seems like it. My my partner at the flea market used to joke that that the island was going to sink one day from the weight of the clothing that we're that we are all sending there. Um. And, and and there's clothing leaving the island as well. Uh, of course, they export a lot of their manufactured clothing and um, around the world. And th- there's Honestly, there's so much American vintage clothing in Japan that it's become an incredible resource for people who want to buy. And and you can buy now. A lot of the websites are set up to sell overseas, um, and there are a lot of people who pre-COVID and hopefully again soon um, would go to Japan on buying trips. Um, I used to I used to buy a lot of clothing, vintage clothing in Japan, bring it back to America, and sell it to designers. Um, I, I try really hard not to buy things in Japan and sell them back to other Japanese guys. Um, but but I would buy I would buy a lot of uh, vintage clothing in Japan and then sell it here in the States to designers because they the Japanese buyer would come on a trip to America and you know they're traveling around, they're going to thrift stores, they're going to antique malls, they're going to see vintage clothing dealers. and um, they're gonna come across, you know, they're gonna see and come across. A much large, a much larger amount of clothing than, than I would come across in the same period. Um, just picking at the flea market, picking at some some thrift stores, picking from some from some dealers that I'm going to see, and, and and then multiply that by the thousands of stores that are in Japan, and and you've got like just a massive archive sitting there waiting to be to be picked through, um, and of course it's expensive, but the thing is, so. It, if I own a store in Japan, and I see a piece of vintage in a thrift store, and it's not exactly what I really love and what I really want to find, but it's you know it's, it's old, and it's here in a thrift store, and it's $4.99, what? I'm not going to leave it there. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to take it back to Japan. It's going to go in my store, and because it's not really my thing, I might not price it that high. So in another store, it might be $200. In that guy's store, it might be $125. And so when I would go to Japan, I would see things like that, that were, you know, that were underpriced because it wasn't necessarily the flavor of that store owner, but, you know, he found it somewhere cheap enough and he bought it. So there's always things, there's always things to buy there that that are, that are priced, that are priced well enough, um, to make, you know, to make, to make money on. And then I would also go there and buy things, uh, for myself, for my collection, Um, for myself to wear. And also eventually when I had the brand, I'd buy things there that I would want to reproduce. So
0: That's a lot better explanation than the one I was working on. I was sort of thinking that uh, our vintage clothes sort of increasing in price like cryptocurrency or something mad.
1: (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes. I mean, I have, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a good investor. I'm not like a, I'm very bad at, at, you know, at that sort of thing. I, I, I have a, I have a great mistrust of the markets and uh, of the financial markets. So, um, basically, my my retirement is is uh, sitting in my warehouse and in my closet. And uh, so far, it's it's gained in, in value for the most part. Uh, at some, hopefully, hopefully, I sell it at a at a point in the market where it's still strong. <laughs> but uh, it's it's sort of the same thing. It is. It's like you know, it's an investment. At the end of the day, it's an investment depending on depending on what you're buying but but a lot of a lot of the a lot of the vintage clothing that's popular right now um if if the if the person holds on to it for an amount of time that it will go up in value a lot of it
0: what sort of what sort of items are the really valuable pieces now
1: um well as i said that (laughs) i thought of a certain segment in the market where i'm not sure it's true which is like right now right now there's a there's a very big wave of of um, interest in in, uh, in t-shirts and sweatshirts, but not very old, like from from the '90s and early 2000s. And and the, there's a very young there's a very young market that's that's buying those things. And and there are things that that to them, you know, they're kids who are 19, 20, 25 years old maybe, and things from the '90s are are either from when they were born, or, or right before they were born, and um, and so there's there's this there's this like really strong wave of of people paying really big prices for some of these things. Those things, I have no idea if they can if they can actually go up in value in the long term. Maybe in the short term, I'm not sure about in the long term. But but the things that I've always always looked for and always dealt in like, you know, things from the, from the turn of the century to the fifties. Um, a lot of, a lot of those things seem to continue to, to hold their value or increase in value. And, and, you know, the obvious thing everybody thinks of is, is Levi's. Um, but there's a lot of other things way beyond that, you know, whether it's military clothing, especially like flight jackets have always been a really strong category. Um, other sorts of denim, whether it's workwear or um, the other the other types of jeans, like you know Lee and Wrangler and, and other brands of jeans. But um, and then sweatshirts, the vintage sweatshirts right now have, have a it's a really big wave, um, and their and their prices have been going up like really steadily. Um, so it, it seems like a a particularly strong moment right now in the market, which is. It doesn't really make sense with the things going on in the world with COVID and everything, but I guess at the same time, it kind of makes sense for human behavior where people are kind of sitting around and, you know, especially the first year of COVID, people had like really nothing to do, but sit around their home and look at the internet. And so, you know, you see these things and maybe you're not spending money on a lot of the things you normally would. So you're spending money on, on these things that are, that are interesting to you, like vintage clothes.
0: A lot of what you mentioned there, I can see as being valuable because, well, to us, it's old stuff and it, there's not there's a finite amount of it, but sort of music t-shirts from the 90s and later, for us, that's the stuff we wore and threw away when we were teenagers yeah. and with H&M and others reproducing them now. I mean, how can it possibly be valuable?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so a lot of these things are being sold nowadays through auctions, and 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 these are not like you know it's not Sotheby's or Christie's like a, and a lot of times it's not an actual although they have had vintage clothing auctions too but these are like literal like live auctions happening on Instagram or on some other platform where somebody's sitting on a on a like we are right now and somebody's holding up a T-shirt and saying you know who's gonna you know who's gonna pay me four hundred dollars for this and who's gonna give me okay if I got four hundred I got five hundred like it's it's happening like that yeah. and um you know there was a there was a not even a music t-shirt it was a, a it was a a, a a disney a disney t-shirt last year that sold for six thousand dollars wow. and you know it was a in that world i guess it was a rare t-shirt but disney had to have made like disney doesn't make things in the you know 50 or a hundred. They still, they still had to have made a thousand or 5,000 or 10,000 of those t-shirts. They're out there somewhere. Mm. Um, but there were two people who really wanted it. And one of them was, one of them was, uh, you know, uh, reportedly, um, a sports, a sports star. So, you know, very, very big disposable income. And, uh, And he just, he just kept going and eventually the other guy dropped out, but you know, $6,000 for, for a Disney t-shirt that was, I think from, I don't know, 1996 maybe. So, um, you know, some of the other ones, like, like there, there's a big wave in, in certain music t-shirts in particular, like, like the bootleg ones, it used to be people didn't want the bootleg ones so much. They wanted more like the official music t-shirt. The big, the wave at the moment is is these '90s and early 2000s um, bootleg ones, like parking lot. They were sold in the parking lots by guys who didn't have the rights to print them, um, and a lot of those have really unique prints, and they weren't made in big quantities necessarily. Um, so that's that could maybe, if the interest stays there, I think those could hold value because they weren't made in such big quantities, um, and music is always, you know, the the the, cro- the you know the the intersection of music and vintage is always a big thing. Um, whether it's what music stars are wearing, inspiring people to want to buy a certain vintage garment, or whether it's you know fans wanting to own a T-shirt from their favorite artist, um, it's always it's always going to be a big thing. I think so.
0: It strikes me that it would be so easy to buy a pile of old T-shirts and just print them up and uh, recreate them.
1: It happens, you know, and, and because it's not that long ago, people will find blanks of mm. the t-shirt that was used, the right... T- because people, if you just print them on a on a new t-shirt, everyone will know, people will recognize it. You might still sell them as just as curiosity items, as, as something somebody can wear, um, but you won't get, you know, you won't get the money that, that the, the authentic one would go for. But people will find piles of never used blanks and over the years people have have done that and and you know it takes it takes people who are are really experienced and really know what they're doing to see to figure out the differences um and and nowadays especially with all the washing things that people have access to if they really want to make something look like it's 10 or 15 years old and and wash it with certain enzymes or, or you know or even just if you take a dead stock music t-shirt, because those were often printed on very cheap t-shirts. If you just wash them five or six times, you're going to get, you're going to get fading and you're going to get, you know, seams breaking. It'll look like something somebody bought. And and again, like, you know, you've, you've been to music concerts, you buy a t-shirt, you wear it three or four times. It finds its way to the bottom of your drawer. Maybe you don't wear it again Mm. um, for a long time. A lot of those things are, are not, they're not always, you know, they don't always show 20, 20, 30 years of wear. So um, it's one of the it's one of the issues <laughs> in the vintage market for sure. And then nowadays with 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 the reproductions be, being so good, um, you, you have you have issues with that where you know some of these Japanese companies will make a reproduction of a military jacket. And if you're it, it, somebody will find one second hand. And there's, there's usually a little tag in the side seam in the, of the body. And that's the only thing they put in there that says, this is not an old garment. Everything else sort of looks like the original. And, um, I've seen plenty of times where people will, with a knife, cut out that little tag and, and try and make it as hard to see as possible, uh, that there was ever a tag there. Um, and then sell it on eBay or sell it, you know, sell it on Instagram as the original, and you hear you hear a lot of stories of, of people getting fooled, and uh, and you know, so yeah, it's it's a big danger in
0: the business. So, being able to age vintage garments, much like uh, an antiques dealer, must be quite the art.
1: 99 percent of the time, if you're looking at it in front of you in your hands, you can see right away. You know, even, even one of those military reproduction jackets, if you're looking at it in a photograph, you know, you you can't quite tell a lot of the times if the zipper is old or not, but, but when it's in your hands, it's not too hard. It's usually pretty easy. Um, But, uh, there, there are those, there are those 1% of the time where it's, where it's really tough and, uh, you know.
0: Is that because it's just too perfect?
1: Some of some of the garments, some of the garments are made are made so well, and the fabrics have become so good. Like a lot of the denim now will fade so well, um, and they maybe those companies a lot of times don't put something inside that says this isn't this isn't a vintage garment. Um, so, uh on the on those things and, and again it, a lot of times it comes down to the 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 trims whether it's a zipper or a button um or a buckle those kinds of things are really hard to reproduce very well so um but but some things are not that hard like for example the army the army made a a denim shirt in the 30s uh, it's a pullover with these really big rectangular pockets on the chest. They have they have little buttons that say U.S. Army on them, and they're and they're stamped out of zinc. There's there's really no difference between if you if you ha- if you make them in the same way, if you and stamping is not that expensive. So if you make the same button stamped out of zinc with the same artwork on it, it's very hard to tell that you know the new one from an old one. Um, Whereas a zipper, the metals are very different. You just, when you slide it, you can feel that you can feel the difference. You look at the base and the way that they reinforce them now is, uh, is usually different. Um, so unfortunately they're fortunately and unfortunately they're getting better and better at that too. Uh, the companies who make the zippers are, um, are constantly improving because, because companies are asking them to, um. But you know, so eventually maybe that'll get to the point where it's it's actually hard to tell an old zipper from a new zipper. But right now you can still you can still tell the difference
0: because zipper technology and design has been very different up through the years. And as I understand, it's a very useful way of of dating a garment.
1: Yeah, sure. Like you know, in the, so the the first fifty years of zipper development, there were constantly things changing. Um, and uh, so there there are details you can look at and age and, and date date the zippers pretty easily for the first, say, fifty years. Um, from that point on, there's not there's not a lot of change that happened other than when when they went from metals to to pla- to nylon to plastic, you know, the, the kind of modern, more techie zippers today. Um, so you know, there, there obviously a lot of a lot of development and changes with those. But in terms of the metal zipper, after about fifty years, there's not there's not much that changed. And by that point, like the the garments from that period when they were changing, when the zippers were changing, that's that's the period where the things are more valuable anyway. Um, so that that's the time period where it's maybe more important, at least right now, to know to know all those details and to know the difference um, in order in order to date. To be able to date a garment, um, whereas the garments from the say fifties, sixties, seventies, the zipper we can still tell we can still tell what the age is, but it's not as critical to know like within say five or ten years of you know th- th- if it's if it's nineteen fifty five versus nineteen sixty five it's not going to make that big a difference, whereas if it's nineteen twenty five or nineteen thirty five. It could make a big difference. So,
0: I often find while looking at old zippers that it's such a, a testament to human ingenuity. I mean, who initially came up with the idea that something like that could be made, and then all the iterations and improvements.
1: If you read the if you read the the history of it, actually, it's pretty amazing that they that they kept at it because it wasn't it wasn't something that absolutely had to be made it wasn't like there was a dire need for a way to close your clothing up they, they you know buttons and, and clips and and other things existed and and um you know hook and eye and there were all kinds of of ways to close your garment there was no desperate need for a zipper and the challenges that they overcame to make it were unbelievable it, took, it was it wasn't you know it wasn't a two or three year process where they said oh you know let's Let's try this. Let's try this, and then oh, there we go. We got it. It took it took twenty five years, maybe easily, from the very first attempts to where they where they got it to the point that it could be made and sold commercially. So, just just the just the 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 fortitude, um, the the commitment to it is is you know it's borderline crazy like that that they kept at it and and that the not just the inventors but the inve- especially the investors that they kept sinking money into it you know failure after failure um it's pretty it's pretty wild it's a pretty wild story
0: and it's and not, it's it's not as if the guy who invented the better zip was going to be a massive celebrity or anything
1: no not at all no, nobody. Nobody knows his name. <laughs> nobody knows any of their names.
0: There must Except be must be a few brands that have sort of been notable during the time, though.
1: In zippers, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, Ta- Talon is the is the most famous zipper company, and um, Talon came from the hookless fastener company. That they changed their name from hookless fastener to Talon. Um, in uh, in 1928, so hookless. You know, if you know zippers before 1928, you know you know hookless. Um, and then once once the technology was 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 got was to the point where it was a working a working commercial um, item, other companies jumped in and uh, and made variations. While 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 hookless's patents were in effect, other companies came up with Slight differences to make something that they could produce, and then when ta- when when the patents expired, um, lots of companies jumped in and and made made uh, similar things. And so, some of them are some of them are pretty well known, especially in that period when Talon's when when Hookless had the patents. Other companies, some some of the some of the variations other companies came up with um, to solve the problem, but in, in the, basically the same way. We're, we're we're pretty unique and are pretty sought after. By vintage collectors, things like um, like lion and um, palm palm zippers. Um, everybody knows Crown, but Crown actually didn't go back that far. Um, I think maybe they started in, in the 30s, but they but they were used in a lot of military garments. So pe- people usually are familiar with with that name.
0: Do you think it's a testament of our times that so many people are obsessed by zips? (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) I, I don't, I don't know what, what it's a testament to it's um, I got really interested in zippers when I was, when I was first getting, getting really into, into vintage clothing as a dealer mainly because it solved the problem of dating things from that that was a period of time that I was that I was really interested in clothing from the 20s and 30s and um, and I was finding a fair amount of it at that time uh, and just to you know just to try and understand what you were what you had and to try and put a value on it because there wasn't there wasn't the internet and there wasn't eBay and there weren't magazines where you could look at prices. So to try and decide how, how rare something was and how old it was in order to inform yourself about what kind of price you might put on it. Um, it was very important And, and, and zippers are one, one of the best details for, for dating a vintage garment if, if the garment has a zipper. So, um, for me, that was the that was the draw. But then, as a technology, it's it's I don't know. There's something like sort of therapeutic about just sliding a zipper up and down. When it's like I'll, sometimes I'll find I'll find a vintage zipper that's not it's just by itself. It's not in a garment. It's just a loose zipper, and I'll find myself just like sliding it back and forth and turning it around because the when I say that that the new zippers that there's a different feel to them. They literally—they don't have the same feel when you slide them. They—they—they're they're stickier. They—they—they they, they feel clunky. They don't—they don't glide. Um, it's probably—it's probably something to do with the cheaper alloys we use now, or, or the, the lesser quality stamping of the teeth or molding of the teeth. Um, but the old ones just have a like I said there's something therapeutic about just sli- sliding the zipper up and down it's probably not very good for the zipper eventually it's going to you know i imagine it's like you go to ikea and you see the display of the of the door being mechanically opened and closed and it's you know there's something there's a sign that tells you that that they they've tested it over 10,000 times or whatever and i imagine that a zipper has a finite number of slides before you start to degrade the fabric and the teeth and something's going to pop but i always enjoy I always enjoy doing that.
0: It is interesting though that zippers which were made when we had poorer technology actually were better sort of functionally.
1: Well, I think I think at that time we made things to last. We didn't you know, I forget the term for it, but um engin- engineered things are engineered to fail now, mm. you know so so you know they they theoretically they think about how long does this need to last and they make it only as good as it needs to be to last that long and in fact they often make it to last less long so we have to buy more of them but um at that time i think we made things to last forever we tried to even if even if the rest of the garment wasn't going to last forever you know if you put a zipper in a in a in a work jacket the zipper's probably going to outlast the jacket you know the jacket's going to wear out before the 1930 zipper would um, so I, I think at that time we just had a, a mentality of making things to last forever um, so yeah it's it, it is interesting that now that we have the we have the capability of making things to last a lot longer we actually make them we make them cheaper and make them last less, less. <laughs>
0: It's it's like some of the cars of the seventies and eighties where they made the massive mistake of making them too well, so they'd never die. They're still right. running around Africa today because they're handy to use there. Right, right. But but there are modern zips that are good. I think. Oh, of course,
1: sure, yeah, and and I mean a lot of them are made with materials that don't necessarily wear out so easily. You know, like that all of the old zips have cotton tape and cotton cotton wears out especially like you know if, if you like vintage garments and and you've had the experience of of the bottom the bottom end of the zipper wearing out especially on the male side uh, where the pin is that fabric in there is constantly getting pulled on especially if it's a short garment a waist gar- length garment there's always tension on that and 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 that piece eventually wears out. Whereas on a modern garment, uh, the the tape is made of nylon, uh, or polyester or something. And there's usually a, a, a a fused on reinforcement down in that area that Mm. makes it even stronger. Um, and, and, and then the teeth, you'll have teeth fail today because, because nylon can get bent, can get heated, things can happen to it. But, but there's definitely, you know, i i I think even there there's there's different among the companies there there's different quality levels, and even within companies they make different different levels of quality in their zippers so um, but but yeah for sure there's definitely some some really strong companies still at it and I, but by now like Japanese companies have bought have bought the names and the rights to all the Ameri- all the old American zippers. So you have companies in Japan making zippers under the names of Talon and, and hookless and, um, and some of the other, and Prentice, some of the other old ones. Um, but you know, there's, there's even from, even from the very start, there were European companies making zippers, um, at first with the, with the hookless patents and then later on their own. Um, but like Riri, I don't know if Dot is still making things in, in, in the UK or not. I'm not sure, but, um, but I think Riri is the first one that comes to mind for European zippers.
0: Something that comes to mind now, uh, because you mentioned that they've bought the names and you do also have, well, should we say, pirate zippers. Um, and thinking back to the RRL recreations of vintage clothes, if you make a garment, I mean, sort of how long do you have the, the rights to making it? Before someone can start ripping off your design, or is that well, it's out there and you can legally do it, or
1: yeah, un- unless unless you patent something in the design, unless you've made something new, um, like you could theoretically, and a lot of old companies did, patent pocket shapes, um, packet patent reinforcements, um, like Mo- motion talked about in your podcast about the about the, riv- the riv- Levi's rivet. But also all those old, other, all those other um, companies who were competing with Levi's at the time and couldn't use the rivet were coming up with different, different ideas about how to reinforce, reinforce a pocket, for example, or, or any stress point. Um, they would, they were patenting those, their ideas. Unless you have something new that you can patent, you can't protect a garment's design just for style. You can't say like, I made this really cool looking jacket that nobody's ever thought of before. And I'm gonna patent it or copyright it I don't I don't believe you can do that it's for in terms of style you can't there's no protection anybody else can make it as soon as you've put it out there um, so yeah it's uh, so we actually four or five years ago we I went to Japan I brought a vintage garment with me uh, we sat we sat down and and like hammered out what our next season was gonna be uh, including this this one particular jacket we were gonna make a version of this uh, one workwear jacket from my collection, and um, finished up my trip. Came back to America two weeks later. Another company in our same in our same market space re- released the exact same their their reproduction of the exact same jacket, and we had to we had to scrap scrap that plan and start over again because it it was a it was a, a ve- it was a very rare jacket there there i've only i think i've seen 3 or 4 examples of it and they had borrowed one from a collector in japan they had borrowed one, one of the ones i was aware of from a collector in japan and, and copied it and it would you know if we had made it a year after they had made it it just would have looked you know we would have looked dumb in my in my mind there's no reason to make it again you know there's just there's no point nothing we were going to do was so different from what they did um so like like why bother? So you know we, we changed our plan and made something else. Um, but there's no protection for them against us doing it. You know the, the market is the market is filled with fanatics and they would people would see it. So so when, when one company does copy something someone else makes or just happens to make the same vintage garment, everyone a lot a lot of people in the marketplace will know, oh, well, they made that other guy made it first at the end of the day and and 5 or 10 years from now does that matter i don't know but you know i when i the, the the collections that that i end up making are pretty small so i want them to be unique i don't want to make something that someone else just made a year or two ago unless i can do something different with it or make it you know make it way be- make it so much better in some way or or make it more make it make it look and feel completely different. Um, I I, I just wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to do that. So, but (laughs) that being said there. you know, again, our company is very small and we make very, very small numbers of things. I've seen, I've seen companies you'll see, you'll get, I'll get, I'll get ads pushed to me on, on Instagram sometimes for Chinese companies who've knocked off, not just my stuff, but other Japanese brands. They, they they look at what Japanese companies are making. Maybe they go to Japan and buy samples and then knock them off and make them for like, you know, pants that we sell for $250 and they'll make them and sell them for $65. And I'm sure they're making thousands and thousands of them. So, you know, there are companies, it becomes a price point thing. Like anybody else can make the same garment as you, uh, but what what usually happens in fashion is that a company uh, selling something at a higher price point will make it, and then somebody who can sell it at a much cheaper price point will knock it off in a much cheaper way, and and sell a much bigger quantity of them. So that, that I mean that happens all the time, and it's happened it's happened forever in fashion.
0: I have wondered about those ads on Instagram because I get a few myself. And my suspicion is that they haven't actually seen the original garment at all. They've just stolen the photo. If you place an order, they will make something that looks vaguely like the photo Mm. and ship it to you. Yeah. By the time you receive it and you feel the hurtful disappointment of being ripped off, you're not going to send it back to China and try to get a refund.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've actually seen... Websites where they've taken our photograph and they're just showing our garment, and hmm. saying they're selling it. I always assumed that 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 they weren't making anything and that they were just trying they were just trying to scam people into sending money and then not shipping anything. Maybe they're doing what you said and and sending something that doesn't look like it. But um, then then on on the other side of it, I've seen companies where they where they are actually knocking it off showing a, showing a garment they made but it looks like mine or somebody else's garment um so it's a it's a dangerous place now the internet
0: <laughs> well i did have an example which i actually showed you on instagram uh last year i think which was a chinese company ripping off a japanese company and fitting repro talon zips uh, and you sort of start wondering, well, what was the original design the Japanese company used, or was that an original good design? And who actually owns these designs anyway? <laughs> and it's just so yeah. mad.
1: Yeah, I mean, like at the end at the end of the day, that kind of thing. I I don't think anybody anybody really owns it. It's just a question of like your integrity and w- whether you're willing to whether you're willing to be that guy who does that or not. Um, I mean, I know. A friend of mine recently posted. So you know, there's a lot of a lot of people will buy an old name, you know, or just 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 trademark a name that, that someone used to make clothing under, and the company is defunct and has been defunct for a long time. Nobody owns the name anymore. Somebody will just pick it up. So um, there's a company making out, outdoor garments under an, an old name. I don't know if they if they purchased the name or if they just started using it. I have no idea, but um, it's a it's an, it's a vintage American brand uh, that we can still find the vintage garments sometimes. Um, but there's a, a new company making garments under that name, and a friend of mine posted a picture of a of a T-shirt that the original old company had made, advertising their brand, and the one of the owners of the new company just screenshot his post and, and posted it on his Instagram, you know, trimmed, trimmed out, trimmed out the other, the other guy's name and just posted it. And, uh, eventually it got back to my friend who owned the t-shirt and who, who had originally posted it. And he, he, he commented on the guy's, on the guy's post, kind of reading him the riot act and telling him, you know, what he thought of him. And the guy, the guy pulled the post down and then he, The guy messaged him though and said, by the way, I'm the owner of the brand, but I will take it down. Sort of with the idea that, well, I own the brand name now, so I have rights to everything out there that exists with that brand. You know, this might be yours and it might be your vintage garment, but I own the brand name now, so I can do whatever I want. Uh, That's just like, that's just, that's, that's, that's not, there's no integrity in that. That's just bad. But that's how people are nowadays, and they do things like that all the time. And they don't they either assume no one will ever bother them about it or or they think if somebody bothers me about it, I'll deal with that then. Or maybe they're just so clueless they don't even think about it beforehand. But I think most of the time they're aware that that they're doing something wrong and that you know, if if anybody calls me out about it, I'll I'll deal with that later. So but my my friend called him out about it and he he took it down. Mm. But just the attitude that I own this name now when actually he never created anything with, to do with that name. Most of what he makes now is just copies of that original company stuff. Like he's not, not creating anything unique. So what do you actually own? I don't know. It
0: sounds more like piracy to me. Exactly. And very cynical as well because he clearly knew what he was doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, for sure. But I, I guarantee you that within within a month or two, he'll be selling that he'll be selling that T-shirt in his brand, and he won't he won't say hey thanks to this guy thanks to this guy for for you know for sharing this picture with us he won't do that mm. so
0: he'll probably be talking about the company's long and illustrious history and uh, how it's continued as a family company through generations
1: exactly and I think the guy who posted who originally posted the, the vintage T-shirt he knows more about the company than this guy who, who owns it now. He knows the history behind it. He, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's pretty sad, but it happens all the time.
0: Now you've mentioned your company a few times. What What is the idea behind that?
1: So um, the, the, the brand name is uh, John Gluckow ancient and modern clothing. And uh, when we started it, I, I told I told um, my uh, my then partner um, from gelato that I didn't want to just make reproductions of things that I wanted to make things that were you know first of all we needed to make them fit better if the fit if the fit of the old garment wasn't good I want to make it fit like a modern garment and I don't want to just copy things exactly like we you know we should we should update them in some way we don't like there's most of the time, there's no reason to just make it exactly the way it was. Uh, I want to, uh, so, and I also wanted to make the clothing around a concept. So each season, we would come up with the concept, and then fit the garments to the concept. So the, the fabric choices and the colors would would be dictated more by the concept than by what the original garment was. Um, so, like for example, our first, our very first season was called U.S. Army Football Club. So it was a a World War II. The idea behind it was that that there was this imaginary World War II U.S. Army soccer team, and what would they, what would their kid have been? What would they have had? So it was a mix of of military clothes and sports clothes, um, and and the crossover of those two things, and uh, with with some graphics that had to do with you know with, with the military, and then some graphics that had to do with sport. Um, and so, so each season had a theme like that, and then and then we would we would choose the, the, the garments to to work from based on the theme, and then decide how to tweak them based on what our concept was. And 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 that's that's pretty much how we operated the brand um, f- uh, from I think I think 2014 was our first year. And I actually just ended um, uh, our, uh, the work with Gelato and I'm starting this month uh, to work with, with a warehouse company. And we, we may or may not work conceptually the same way. Um, we're actually just starting the first season. For the first season, we're, we're, we're hammering out basically a bunch of standard items, basics that we will try to offer um, every season. Uh, so we're not actually putting together a concept for this first season. Um, but, um, but, I, I'm really looking forward to, to warehouses, uh, um, level of, 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 um, knowledge and expertise with regard to fabrics. They make a lot of their own fabrics. Um, they, they have really good connections with fabric mills and with factories in Japan and, um, so, so uh, I'm looking forward to making fabrics with them for the garments, uh, as opposed to using a lot of stock fabrics, and um, just uh, seeing where we can where we can go with that.
0: And is this mainly for the Japanese market or worldwide?
1: Uh, I think Warehouse has a much um, has a has a bigger network of of dealers outside of Japan. It's it's not huge, but they definitely and they. Uh, and probably a more more recognized name outside of Japan, uh, but still, still, it's 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 within that you know heritage uh, vintage inspired world. Um, they're, they're not a household name by any means, but um, but they're but they're they're definitely within that within that marketplace. Um, they're, they're more a more recognized name, but it's it's still mainly mainly a for Japan product.
0: Okay, I look forward to seeing the results of it it's, a, it's this whole idea of making concepts is something which is very interesting because I mean you're not the first guy to to think of that absolutely um, not, and a few of my favorite designers have had them but it's it's always a pretty sort of hit and miss thing because either you'll totally get the concept or it will be sort of just wildly uninteresting.
1: yeah, I mean, so that first one was something I had thought about like years before. Um, I don't even know like where, where, where it came to me or why it came to me, but it was just something I had thought about. Maybe, maybe I found a particular piece of vintage and thought about it or or, I don't really remember, but, um, so that was one that just had kind of stuck in my head. Um, and when I, when, when I was approached, uh, by gelato about, about making a brand, it was like right away. I felt like, I want to make that as a concept. Um, Approaching the business that way was probably not the smartest way to start a brand. And it, and it, and it, it threw up challenges to us that I didn't anticipate. And I think, I think that, um, that Goto-san, the owner of Gelato, didn't anticipate either in that every season we were making new items. And, um, and when you have a business, you want to have some staples that people can always buy and that people always come back to. And we didn't have, we, we started out, we, we didn't have any of those and we didn't, we weren't thinking that way. We weren't thinking, well, we need, what, what's, what's going to be the bread and butter of this brand? Well, how are we going to make money? We were just making new items every season, completely new items, not repeating anything. And, uh, and it made a lot of challenges for us. And l- luckily for us, one of the pants that we made from the very start really took off and, and, and did well for us every season. And that became kind of our, our bread and butter. Um, but I think starting now, starting again, now, um, we're approaching it a little bit differently and maybe we'll come back to concepts, but I, I never really intended the concepts to be presented to the retail public. It was more of a way for me to explain what the line was to, to Gotosan and why, why do I want to make these five or six or eight pieces together? And, and then, and then maybe take it that next step when we present it to um, in the exhibition to the stores that are going to buy from us. But I never necessarily thought like the retail buyer at the end needs to hear about this concept. Like one of our concepts was a a guy who was a merchant sailor in the thirties and his ship, his ship sank and he ended up in a, he ended up on, on one of the Pacific islands uh, on a, where there was a navy base, and he just decided to join the navy, so he had this weird mix of like commercial, commercially bought clothes that he owned as a, as a merchant sailor, and then he had the stuff that the navy gave him just before World War II. So it was like this kind of odd mix of commercial and military clothes. But like the guy buying it in the store doesn't necessarily need to know all that. There's no, you know. So, I guess for for some people having that backstory is kind of interesting, and wh- when we shot, ca- sometimes we shot catalogs for it. We would sort of feed that into the catalog too. But I mean, it's it's not necessary to sell to sell the clothes, but it's kind of fun in a way.
0: It sort of kind of depends whether you're just selling a pair of trousers or you're selling the romance and the idea and the whole thing. Right. Because
1: the JP The J. Peterman effect.
0: Because I I will see a pair of trousers and think yeah well, but if there's a whole sort of extra dimension to it <laughs>
1: yeah but at the end of the day when you walk out of the store with those with those pants like it's just your story like you don't have you can't you can't go around wearing them imagining you know I'm that guy who was shipwrecked in, in the Pacific oh, that's, so that's where you, you sort of to kind of
0: taper into the whole cosplaying thing where you're dressing up or you're sort of recreating yeah. larping something or other
1: which was why I, which was why I said to, to Koto san at the beginning that I didn't want to make reproductions because I I really don't I don't dress like that, and I and I don't I, I don't want to I don't I don't want to discourage anybody who really wants to dress like that, but I don't necessarily want, you know, like when I would go back to Japan for an exhibition, and uh, we would often have we would often have events in the store, and and retail customers would come to the store and I get to meet them. And, and some guys would come in, you know, with their own style, they'd mixed, they maybe had like one or two of, of my garments on mixed with some gelato or mixed with some warehouse or mixed with vintage. And you could tell that they had, they had their own idea. They had their own style and their own way of wearing things. But then, you know, you'd have, you'd have other guys who'd come in dressed head to toe in my clothes. And then, and i would i would realize oh wow that doesn't that doesn't work like <laughs> those two things those two things weren't meant to be worn together <laughs> so you know i really i, I want to give people clothes that they can then take and wear with the clothes they already own with their existing wardrobe or with the things they're going to buy down the road which aren't necessarily for me um, so it's always that's always kind of my my aim when I think about what am I going to make this season? Um, You know, whether it's, you know, what do I want to wear right now? Or what have I found recently? That's really interesting to me that, that I haven't seen a lot of other companies remake. Um, But I, but I always want to make it in a way that, that it kind of mixes with, with the other clothes I already own, you know, which could be vintage again, which could be other brands. Uh, But I, I don't try to make like a, a Geranimals, you know mix and match where somebody's got to wear all my clothes like I don't expect anybody to do that so
0: so this season we are a steam train operator from the nineteen early 1900s or something it,
1: exactly exactly
0: <laughs> so, yeah so what do you wear i
1: uh, I still wear a lot of vintage um, and I wear I wear a lot of a lot of the clothing from my own brand um, I get most i get a lot of the items that we make i end up ordering for myself for my son sometimes for my wife for friends um so um uh, i can say that we've we've been we've been pretty good at at you know sat, at at satisfying that aim of making things that are wearable um mixed especially mixed with vintage i wear you know probably a 50/50 mix of vintage and the things we made I don't, I don't buy a lot of other new clothing, um, just by habit. I haven't for a long time. Um, shoes, I buy new more often than not because I have really bad feet (laughs) and I need to be comfortable. (laughs) Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of buying other brands, new clothing, it's, it's, you know, maybe something technical that I need for warmth. Um, Swimwear, maybe even my my current swim trunks are vintage, and I get yelled, I get, I get laughed at all the time. So, uh,
0: surely you know how to make your own now, though.
1: Yeah, that's right. That was the first thing. So, yeah, I should probably just make some of my own.
0: Yeah, uh, I see we've been going on for a, quite a while now, John. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Is there anything you'd like to touch upon, sort of in closing? Ah. Uh, Maybe we could just briefly touch upon uh, old uh, hip-hop shirts again.
1: That's the category of of shirts, like the parking lot ones, that are really popular.
0: Sort of Tupac stuff. Yeah, and-
1: yeah, yeah. Anything with Tupac or like all that kind of, all the stuff from the, like all the rapper stuff from the 90s. But they were made on t sh- A lot of them were, especially the parking lot ones, were made on these T-shirts that, so so black dye, uh, is notorious for for um, like like degrading the fabric over time. Okay. If you look at like uh, a lot of the t shirt, a lot of the '70s t shirts from Pakistan that that a lot of the older like '70s and '80s rock t shirts were made on. A lot of times they just pull apart. Wow. Oh. You'll see the seam the seams all fail because the, the the fabric gets weak, and a lot of a lot of things from like. The wartime and before that are black, that are dyed black. Um, if they're never worn and washed, if they're worn and washed, they usually hold up fine. But if they were never washed, sometimes they just fall apart in your hands. And so the those parking lot T-shirts were made of the same sort of black dye, apparently, because you see a lot of people complaining about, "Oh, I paid a thousand dollars for this T-shirt, and it's it's got it's got dry rot." They call it the kid, The kids call it dry rot so that's uh if you're if you're if your raptees don't have dry rot you probably have some money
0: <laughs> well there you go okay john thanks a lot john it was an absolute pleasure and uh, bye-bye
1: thanks for having me bye-bye
0: And that was all for this week's episode of GOMology. I've put uh, links to John's uh, Instagram accounts in the show notes. Um, If you'd like to get in touch, it's welldressedad at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it's just welldressedad. You can find the blog and more at welldressedad.com. If you'd like to get in touch, tip me off about guests, just give me some comments. Please do. I'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a link to buymeacoffee.com garmology, where you can buy me one or more cups of coffee if you like. If you don't, that's fine too. So until next week, bye bye.